Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. In this series, The Church, an Ancient Future, we are casting vision for a future church that will be relevant in a changing culture by learning ancient truths from the early days of Christianity. For more information about Abundant Life, or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. Great to see you once again. Independence Blue Springs, all of you worshiping our online campus, Lee Summit, so good to be back among you today. This is rated for M for a mature audience. You've been duly warned. Uh, PG 10, 12-ish, somewhere in there. Um, we're gonna talk today about something that needs to be said. As we go back to the future and study the ancient past to discover a way forward. We're living in the days of Rome, 21st century American society. Not a Judeo-Christian civilization any longer, but rather a Greco-Roman civilization with a whatever goes mentality sexually. This was first century Rome the church at Corinth, Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you have a copy of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The city of Corinth was a Grecian city. Think of our New York City. It was a port city, a very wealthy city, but it was also home to the cult of Aphrodite. Meet Aphrodite. She is the goddess of sexuality, sensuality. This statue discovered by archaeologists that dates from about 100 B.C., her idol, her statue was always very sensual, always nude, always found in erotic places and positions. And it was in the cult of Aphrodite in her temple where pilgrims would come from the Roman world to worship her, taking place in part in religious acts of prostitution and sexual orgy. And this was Corinth at its finest hour. And there's this little church that is planted in the city of Christians, formerly pagans. They were Greeks and Romans that had now come to faith in Jesus. But they were taking their old lifestyle with that sexual ethic and they were making it a part of their new lifestyle, their new life in Christ. And Paul is now writing for this reason. And I'm convinced personally his words of wisdom, this ancient wisdom, is more relevant than ever in our modern civilization because the spirit of Aphrodite is well in American society. He actually has finished a dissertation in chapter 5 where he's addressed a specific situation in the Corinthian church of a man that was sleeping with his mother and doing it in the open, not even in secrecy. They were openly uh, flaunting this relationship of incest. And he writes about this very thing in chapter five. And then he begins going into chapter six, kind of doing a high-level flyover as these new Christians that are coming out of paganism were mixing their sexual ethic of this Greco-Roman city with their new life in Christ. And he's being very specific. What he's teaching is that sexual immorality and Christianity are not compatible. That we're called to be a separated people. That we're called to live different. And he puts it this way uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he tells us we have to aspire to be a holy church and a holy people in an age of sexual depravity. 
that we have to aspire as those who follow a holy God to a life of holiness in an age of depravity, the spirit of Aphrodite. It says this in verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Now, he's saying it's very specific here about everything that was alive in Corinth and Roman society, everything that's alive today in 21st century American society. He says, don't be deceived. The Corinthians had been deceived. What they were believing was a deception. It was a distortion. What they were believing is that sexual immorality was compatible with their Christianity. And he says very specifically, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, and that word in the Greek is pornea, from which we get the modern word pornography. It was kind of a generic term for all sexual immorality. He says, neither fornicators nor idolaters. Now, it's interesting because idolatry and immorality always go hand in hand. Self-idolatry is always what feeds sexual immorality, meaning self-gratification over God's glorification. Now, he goes on. He says, fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites. Now, this term homosexual in the Greek it would be the passive member of a homosexual relationship. Let's just put it that way. The more effeminate member of that homosexual relationship, which he distinguishes from what he calls a sodomite, that Greek term translated sodomite, would be the more aggressive member, let's just put it that way, of a homosexual relationship. This term sodomite in the Greek literally refers to a man that lies with another man in the same fashion a man would lie with a woman. He goes on, he says, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkenness, Drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. All these things were considered culturally normal and acceptable in a Greco Roman world. All of these things. And what Paul is teaching is this this is what you were, but this is not what you is. As a child of God, you have a brand new identity. You're a brand new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 17. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the Apostle Paul is writing these Corinthian Christians because they were letting some of the old things and the former things still shape some of the new things and the new way of living. He's saying, no, as a follower of Jesus, everything has changed. And I would suggest that everything going on in the Corinthian church in the first century is going on in this church in the 21st century. See, some of us have been deceived, maybe even by a pastor or a theologian that's telling you that this form of sexual immorality is compatible with Christianity. But I want to remind you of something Jesus says in Hebrews 13 and verse 5. He said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't change. When everything else changes, there's one thing that's still the same. Our God is still the same. We sang about it this morning, holy, holy, holy. Do you understand that for every one verse in the Bible on the love of God, there are seven verses on the holiness of God? 
And he hasn't delivered us from sin, so we continue to walk in depravity and sin and immorality. He's delivered us from the power of sin and sin's penalty, so we too can walk out a life that is holy. He goes on in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. He's writing to these Corinthians who've come out of paganism, who used to worship in the temple of Aphrodite and take part in these temple acts of prostitution in the name of their religion and sexual orgies. He's saying, listen very carefully. You were that, but that's not what you are. See, as a Christian, this is what I was, but it's no longer what I am. Why? Because we have been washed, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What is this term justified? It means you've been delivered from sin's penalty. What is this term sanctified? You've been delivered from sin's power. It's the work of God's Son that justifies us. It's the work of God's Spirit that sanctifies us. I don't need to worship any longer a different spirit, the spirit of Aphrodite. I've got a new spirit living within. It is the Holy Spirit. And he separated me and sanctified me and the blood of God's son has washed me and justified me. You see, the reality is sin is not holy. What is it to be holy? If we want to aspire to be holy in an age of depravity, we need to recognize what it means. It simply means separated. God has separated and hallowed your life, separating it from sin, separating it now to him. To be holy means to be white and clean. Oh, this is why in Revelation 19, the church is found in white linen gowns. It says that white linen is a picture of the righteousness of the saints. First oh, John 1, 5, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. You see, this is a picture of what it means to be holy, but sin is a distortion. Sin, you see, always stains and brings shame, and every single one of us have sinned again and again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. That is the nature of us all. Romans 3 and verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. None of us come into this world born white and clean and holy. We come into this world fallen like our father Adam before us. Romans 5 and verse 12. For as by one man's sin, death entered the world, so death passed on all men, for all have sinned. You see, the reality is we're born with sin within. Before we've ever actually sinned, we're born a sinner by nature. It's only a matter of time before we sin. We're not holy. We're not clean. Now remember, no one goes to heaven apart from perfection because heaven is a place of perfection. It's not simply about being a good person. See, somebody says, well, I've sinned less than that person. That person sinned a lot more than I did. No, listen very carefully. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all been stained with sin. There's not one of us that's the exception. No one's the exemption. And what happens is not only are we born with sin, which is why we're really good at sinning. Don't sit there like you're all self-righteous. You know it's true. All right? We're really good at sinning. Amen? And it comes easy. It comes natural. And then what happens is we have this Greco-Roman society that is completely antithetical to the life we're called to live in Christianity. And we just kind of soak in the lies of society. It's all around us daily. We're bombarded daily with the lies of the enemy. And so we get saturated in this Greco-Roman society like these early Christians in Corinth were absolutely saturated living in the shadow of the cult of Aphrodite. And all of a sudden, instead of being white and clean, 
Our lives are more like a dingy, grayish, brownish something. And I want you to know what Jesus did at Calvary. It says in 1 John 1, 8, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It says in Isaiah chapter 53, all we like sheep had gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. But when our sin hits the blood, it washes us. And that's why the apostle Paul says, now you've been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You see, when you quit soaking in the world's lies and you start to soak in the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. And this is why he could say, and such were some of you. Yeah, you used to be sexually immoral. You used to worship in the cult of Aphrodite. You used to be an adulterer. You used to be a pornographer. You may still struggle with that temptation, but that is not your true identity. I want you to meet a member of Abundant Life. She's been a part of our church for several years. Her name is Holly Jones. She's got a story of what was and a story now of what is. And the truth is her story is in all of us. Her story is you. Her story is me. In my heart, I felt it was either be in a same-sex relationship and be happy or no relationship and be miserable. That was what I felt like my options were. I had no idea that there could be healing and restoration of my heart and life. Ever since I can remember when I was a little girl, I had same-sex attraction. I remember playing Barbies and thinking the Barbies belonged together and not the Ken and Barbie. And when I was younger, I had some sexual abuse happen to me, and I think that kind of shaped a little bit more because those could have been natural feelings that would have gone away. but. As I got older and as a teenager, I wasn't attracted to the boys. I was attracted to the girls. And it was extremely confusing and it was very lonely and heartbreaking. I didn't act on my feelings until I was in college though. When I was in college, I kind of felt like, like most people, you kind of start a new life when you go to college and you become who you are as a person. When I first acted out on my feelings, the Holy Spirit just really convicted my heart. And that alone should have told me it was not what God wanted for me in my life. But um, I made excuses, you know, every excuse that I possibly could. And I, I read every inch of the Bible that covers homosexuality and same-sex attraction, and I made excuses. I continually was going to church every Sunday. I um, was on a leadership team for a Christian organization on my campus and a Christian sorority. I felt like I was every bit of the Christian I was beforehand, but truth be told, I lessened God in my life and in my heart so that I would not feel guilty about what I was doing. I continually kept telling myself <laughs> I need to stop acting on my feelings. I need to get right with God. And the way to do that was to end my relationship. But it's easier said than done. You know, this is somebody that I loved, somebody that I cared for very much. And 
it was going to rock both of our worlds to admit to myself that this is not what God wanted for me. And so it took a long time to develop the courage to do so. Um, but once I did, a peace came over me, a joy came over me that only God can provide. And I ended up going through a organization called Generational Healing. And um, I went to a conference that they called a Broken Heart Conference. And they don't focus on same-sex attraction. What they focus on is your hurts and pains from your past and healing your hurts and pains from your past. And in their experience, when you heal from your past wounds, no matter what those are, those feelings go away naturally. And in my instance, in my case, it did. And my life changed instantly. God blessed me with an attraction to men and my attraction to women was gone. And I had a best friend named Brandon, who I actually dated back when I was 19 for the first time. And one of the reasons why it didn't work out back then was even though I was attracted to Brandon, I felt like I was living a lie being with a man when I had attraction for women. And so it didn't work out back then, but we stayed best friends all these years. Um, and then when I was 23, I went through all the counseling that I did and had my second chance at life. Eventually, he ended up telling me that he was still in love with me and that he was kind of waiting for me to realize that we were meant to be together. And poor Brandon had to watch me date other men until I was ready. And my heart was ready about four years ago. And God just really laid it on my heart. Every guy I dated, I was, I was comparing him to Brandon. And they weren't good enough because they weren't Brandon. And I was scared because I knew me telling Brandon how I felt equaled me getting married. So it was literally like saying, I love you and saying I do at the exact same moment because he was my very best friend and you can't undo that <laughs> once you say it. It's kind of like a little love fairy tale of getting to marry your best friend. And, and now we have a beautiful baby boy. <laughs> And God blessed us with a beautiful child. <laughs> and um, I am so in love and so is Brandon. I never thought this life would be possible. And God has restored my life and has given me an abundance of joy and blessings that I never thought I was capable of having. Praise be to God. A life changed by Jesus. Holly, thank you for courageously sharing your story. It gives hope to all of us because the reality is all of us are all of her. It matters not your temptation, matters not your sin. We all have areas of temptation and sin. It's born in. And the world would have you believe that you're just this way and you can't help being this way. And what God wants you to say is, no, that's what you were, but this is not what you are. As a Christian, he's got something brand new and he can do it for you too. As such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And church, I'm gonna share something today that a lot of us haven't maybe heard in our whole life or maybe not for a long, long time. And the reason the Apostle Paul is writing the Corinthian church 
is because he wants us to understand that our God has something brand new, completely different than maybe all of those around you. And it's that all sexual activity outside of biblical marriage is sin. It's sin. I know that's a word we don't like to use, not even in church life today. Like we like to think in terms of, well, I've made some mistakes. We don't like to think in terms of, well, I've sinned. Right? A mistake is eating Taco Bell at midnight right before you go to bed. <laughs> That's a mistake. A sin is something different. A sin is when God says stop and we choose to go anyway. See, we think God puts lines in our lives to oppress us. Listen, God doesn't put lines in our lives to oppress us, but to protect us. For the same reason the highway department puts lines out on the highway. Those lines aren't to oppress you, but to protect you. And people get really offended by this God that, you know, would say, well, I've sinned. Or, you know, we like to think of God today in American Christianity uh, as just our doting grandfather in the sky, rocking on his rocking chair, just winking at our sin. I'm trying to tell you, he's holy. For every one verse on the love of God, there are seven on the holiness of God. And he wants his sons and daughters to be holy in this age of depravity and the spirit of Aphrodite. And he puts lines in our lives specifically not to oppress us, but to protect us. Somebody says, well, I want to live however I want to live. You can do that. In the same way, when you get in your car and you go home today, you can drive in whatever way you want to. I don't suggest you do. Well, how dare they put lines on the road? I want to drive wherever I want. Go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, cross the line. Everybody else is going this way. You're going this way because you can do what you want to do. No, please don't do that. This is just theoretical, metaphorical. Everybody understand, right? Well, Pastor Phil said I could do that. Here's the point. The lines are there to protect you, not oppress you. When you cross the line, you decide you're going to drive your way and do it your way and run in your own lane. You might go a long, long ways and be just fine, but eventually it's going to end in a collision. It's going to end in devastation. Romans 6.23 is true. The wages of sin is death. Sin always brings destruction and death and devastation to our lives, and sexual immorality will bring death and devastation to your life personally. He's not trying to oppress you. He's trying to protect you. And sexual activity outside of biblical marriage is sin. Sin always has consequences. Now, we have to define marriage in this day and age. Wouldn't have had to do this just a few years ago. What is biblical marriage? Well, I'll tell you what biblical marriage is. It's not my definition. It's Jesus' definition. He's the one that said it in Matthew 19 and verse 4. As Christians, we follow Jesus. Yes, yes. Now, I have to qualify that, because some Christians think, well, I can pick and choose what I follow, what Jesus said, and what I don't. And people like to say, well, Jesus never spoke into this. Phony baloney. There's that deep theological term again. I find myself saying it often. They came to Jesus in Matthew 19, specifically asked Jesus about marriage. They were asking him a question about marriage. And in Matthew 19, verse 4, this is how Jesus defined marriage. Have you not heard? He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. Have you not heard that in the beginning God created male and female? There's the biblical definition of marriage from Jesus himself. 
Now notice, he did not appeal to culture, but rather creation, to define marriage. Our culture can do whatever they want with marriage. Our government has redefined marriage as now between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or a woman and a man. The government can do whatever it wants with it. But I'm not talking about what government does with it, or society does with it. As Christians, I want to know what God says about it. And God hadn't changed his mind of what he said. He appealed to creation, not culture, because culture's always changing. And here's what happened in 2015, when our culture redefined marriage now as a same-sex couple or a male and a woman. Listen, when you redefine it for one group, now you gotta redefine it for all groups. When you redefine it for some, you've gotta redefine it for everyone. And that's why we now live in a state of moral anarchy because we've abandoned biblical morality. Jesus defined marriage as between a male and a woman, Matthew 19 and verse 4, as a biblical marriage and any sexual activity outside of a biblical marriage is a sin. Now, gay and lesbian people sometimes think, well, all the church does is talk about our sin. And unfortunately, sometimes, historically, they're probably right. And so let me make it clear, all sexual activity outside of biblical marriage is a sin. Now we live in a Greco-Roman culture where all of a sudden this idea of biblical morality, like I'm not sure what it is, has become really fuzzy. It's kind of that dingy state of gray. It's kind of gotten muddy. And so what applies probably to most of us here there's a conversation we have a lot of times at Abundant Life. When people go through our Next Steps class and they want to become a member of Abundant Life, anybody can attend our church. I don't care what you believe, where you've been, your sin, anybody can attend our church. If you want to come and pursue Jesus, follow Jesus, you are welcome here. And we will try to love you well and lead you well. But we're not going to compromise on the truth just to keep you here. See, we're not trying to build a bigger church, we're trying to build a biblical church. And you can build a crowd, but that's different than building a church. We're not trying to build a bigger crowd. We're gonna stand for the truth and we're gonna do it with love. I promise you're gonna be loved. We're gonna love you well. But listen, love is not a license for sin. Somebody today loves you enough to tell you about your sin and preach about sin. Now you can find another preacher to say something different. That's easy to do in modern churchianity. That's easy. I'm just telling you up front, do not trust a man that will not preach about your sin. He does not care about your soul. All he cares about is your money. I don't want anything from you. I want you to see God has something better for you. And if you're living together, like a husband and a wife, but you're not a husband and a wife. Like there, there was a time, everybody knew in America, Judeo-Christian civilization, like you don't live together like you're married until you actually get married. If you're sleeping with someone, having sex with someone, living with someone, but you're not married to that someone, you are living in sin. It's just true. I'm not mad at you. I love you. I care about you. I want the blessing of God upon your life. And I'm trying to tell you, God cannot bless your relationship while you're living in sin. Your next step is to get married. And if you're living together like you're married, why wouldn't you just get married? Now, it's true of heterosexual relationships outside of marriage. It's true of homosexual relationships outside of marriage. We all have decisions to follow Jesus or follow the world. 
And this is what the Corinthians were doing. They were trying to mix their former lifestyle that was pagan with their new life in Christ. And Paul's going, time out, wait a minute. I don't know if you realize this or not, but what the pagans do, the Greco-Romans, the sexual ethic is radically different than what God wants for our lives. And this is one of the distinguishing characteristics of the early Christians. Remember, this passage and this, this uh, sermon and this series itself is called An Ancient Future. We're learning from the past to navigate the future. We're living in the days of Rome. One of the distinguishing characteristics of the early Christians is they had a radically different sexual ethic than those around them. It was called monogamy in marriage. And nobody had ever heard of that before. I mean, the Greco-Roman sexual ethic, listen, guys, it was, it was sick. It was, it, was, it, was, it was unbelievable where that had become. I'm telling, I'm telling you, we as Americans aren't even quite there yet. We're talking an anything-goes mentality. There were no lines anymore. If you're a woman, you were expected to bear children for your husband, but you fully understood ahead of time he was going to have one mistress after another all of his life. He was probably going to be bisexual. He was probably going to have one affair after another with women and men. It was perfectly culturally acceptable for man-boy relationships. An older man would take an adolescent boy under his wing and emasculate him make him effeminate, treat him like a woman to shape him, not to be a man, but a woman. Did you know it was illegal for women to actually be a part of the theater and do female parts in theater? They would take little boys, emasculate them before puberty so their voice would not change and they could grow up then and do the parts of women in theater. We're talking evil. And this was considered perfectly acceptable. See, this is the problem when we use cliches to form our worldview. You hear them all the time. Well, love is love. That's one we hear all the time. Love is love. As long as you love someone, it's okay to have sex with that someone. Doesn't matter who they are. Love is love. Think about the logic. Let's follow that to where it's heading. Logically speaking, if love is love, and that's just a common denominator, what makes it moral to have sex with someone, then not only does that make it okay to have sex with someone that is your same gender, or sex with someone of the opposite gender, even if it's not in marriage, as long as I love them, what do you do someday? Well, love is love. What do you do with the 40-year-old that says, I love this 12-year-old girl? If love is love, that's logic, right? What do you do with the 45-year-old school teacher? who says, well, I love my student. He's 14, but I love him. Love is love, right? I mean, th that's the cliche, that's the logic. What do you do someday when somebody says, well, I don't just love my wife, I happen to love 12 women. I love them all. I guess polygamy has to be legal now too. Feels natural to me. See, that's the cliche and that's the logic of our day. It's called chaos morally. It's moral anarchy. When you change it for one person, you gotta change it for all the others too. And that is what is happening now in the 21st century. That's how the Greco-Romans got there, and that, you see, is where we are going. And that is why the Bible is so emphatic. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. 
He's holy. He has no choice but to judge sin. There are consequences therein. He's saying the marriage bed is undefiled. If you're married, it is sacred. God wants married couples to have sacred, sizzling sex. Red-hot, monogamous sex in marriage. Thank you. Really, this doesn't make God blush. It was his idea. It doesn't embarrass him. It's for a reason. Specifically, I'm going to say something you probably never heard in church before. Sex is fun. God made it to be that way. But it's not just for fun. It's for more than that. And that is why he's very specific. It's sacred. And Satan wants to steal what is sacred and distort it and hijack it. And I want you to understand what's happening. Marriage and sexual intimacy are sacred to God because it's God's picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. You go to Ephesians chapter five. Here's the theology of marriage. You have a man who's a picture of Christ. You have the woman who's a picture of the church, the bride of Christ. Everything God wants to teach us about what we cannot see, he gives us something we can see. And to teach us about a relationship with him, he gives us marriage. Jesus is called the bridegroom and the church is called the bride of Christ. Now I want you to know something. Jesus as the bridegroom is not married to another bridegroom. That's why same-sex marriage is a distortion of the picture God is painting through marriage. This is why polygamy is a distortion, polyamorous relationships. Well, we have an open marriage. Yeah, did the Greco-Romans too. Everything going on in Corinth is happening in our city, Kansas City. Now, you don't have to fly to Las Vegas for Sin City. This is Sin City. Everything happening in Corinth is happening here. You can sign up to be part of a swingers club. Give away your spouse for the night. Trade wives. There's a payday someday. Yeah, you'll have fun for a while. Hebrews 9, sin is pleasurable for a season. But when you start crossing those lines, you're headed for a collision. Polygamy is a distortion. Why? Jesus has a bride, not multiple brides. See, divorce is a distortion. You know why? Listen, divorce itself is not always a sin, but it's always sin that causes divorce. Divorce is a distortion of God's picture he's painting through marriage. You know why? Hebrews 13 and verse five, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, that is a covenant. That's not a contractual agreement. That's not a conditional agreement. If you do this, I'll do this. No, here, check this out. It's a covenant relationship. As a member of Christ's bride and his body, he's not gonna leave you nor forsake you. He's not going to divorce you. You see, marriage is meant to be a covenant between two people for life. As a picture, theologically, of what God is painting in that relationship between us the bride and the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, marriage, gender, and sexuality have always been a battleground because Satan desires to hijack what is holy and distort God's image. I actually, several years ago, had the chance to go tour the ancient city of Corinth. 
It is still there today. You can see the ruins. You can walk in the very places the Apostle Paul would walk. You can look up at the, uh, at the mountain uh, was the temple of Aphrodite, and up there was the shadow of this temple that overshowed the city. And you can get a feel, actually, for what these early Christians must have felt like as they were living literally in the shadow of this cult of Aphrodite, of everybody around them that would go worship in this temple of Aphrodite and it was a way of sexual orgy and this was perfectly natural and normal and here you have the apostle Paul saying no not if you're a follower of Jesus and you can see the statues I mean the statuary of the ancient Greeks and Romans naked bodies were everywhere pornography is not a modern invention of men pornography is not a modern invention of modern men and women. It's been around for eons of time, a pornographic society full of promiscuity. And it's always been a battleground because it's sacred to God. Satan wants to hijack what is holy and distort the image of God. And most recently is transgenderism, that's not new. You hear another cliche, well gender isn't between the legs, it's between the ears. No, gender is not between the legs and it's not between the ears. It's in the DNA. It's in the chromosomes. This is Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is no friend of Christianity, if you know anything about him. He's an avowed atheist. He's a scientist, author of the book God Delusion. In 1996, the American uh, Humanist Association gave him an award, the Humanist of the Year Award. What is humanism? Secular humanism is the religion of atheism. Secular humanism is self-deification. God becomes man. Man is God. We are own little gods. This is where you come off with this idea that I'm living my truth and you can live your truth. If I'm God, I can do that. Secular humanism, self-deification. We're now it becomes all about self-gratification, self-glorification. So here you have the 1996 Humanist of the Year. April of this year, the American Humanist Association stripped Richard Dawkins of that award given to him 25 years ago. Because for the last five years, he's been saying things like this. As a scientist, and he wrote this in 2015, is trans woman a woman purely semantic? If you define by chromosomes, no. If by self-identification, yes. I call her she out of courtesy. He just happens to be an honest scientist, no friend of Christianity. See, we live in a post-truth era. Post-Christian era is a post-truth era. It's even a post-science era where people apply the science when it advances their narrative and then ignore the science when it doesn't advance their narrative. And here you have this man, who he quote, has used science to demean marginalized people groups. They canceled Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Church, I have to warn you, if we're gonna live as Christians as they did in the early days, we're gonna be canceled too. Understand, I don't get anything from preaching this kind of a message except hate mail. I have nothing in it to gain, nothing. 
except I'm a called man of God to preach to the people of God, and I care deeply about your soul. I want you to win, and you can't win if you're choosing to walk in sin. I've been canceled, our church will be canceled, we'll make it into the news again, and it's the social media, I guess, get, 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 we're gonna be picketed, and I'm telling you, we're gonna be called haters and bigots, what do we do? We just keep loving people, that's what we do. We just stay focused, being living proof of loving God. When they say you're a hater, just keep loving them. They say you're a bigot, just keep loving them. I mean, this, this kind of a message is so wildly unpopular. I understand. This is the world we live in. I've set up an email account just to receive emails from this permin specifically this week, all right? So if you want to email me criticism, complaints, I've set up an email account to do that. Chad.glover at <laughs> livingproof.co. Send them all, all you want. The early Christians were canceled. I would rather be canceled by men than canceled by heaven. I've been told, Phil, you're on the wrong side of history. I'd rather be on the wrong side of history and the right side of eternity. I mean, really. Dr. Richard Levine recently made the news as the first ever four-star commander in U.S. military history. Of course, he's the assistant secretary of HHS. He's part of the Biden administration. Don't answer this question, purely rhetorical. What do you think, what do you feel when you look at Rich, uh, Dr. Levine? Don't, don't answer out loud. Do you feel contempt? Condemnation? Can I tell you what Jesus feels? It is not contempt. It is not condemnation. It's compassion. See, I'm telling you this because too much of the time the church historically had the right position, we had the wrong disposition. I'm telling you the right position, it's what God says, but now I'm telling you God's heart, it's what God feels. He doesn't feel contempt when he looks at Dr. Rachel Levine, who is still a he. He feels compassion. And that has to be the posture of the church, it has to be the posture of our hearts as Christians. Jesus said in John 3, 16, God so loved the world, God so loved Dr. Levine, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. You see, Jesus said, I didn't come for condemnation, I came for salvation. I didn't come for condemnation, I came with compassion. And it's not enough for us to have the right position. We have to have the right disposition. 
Jesus was full of grace and truth. Twice it says Jesus was a man full of grace and truth. It's 100% grace and 100% truth. Jesus didn't have to manage that tension because he was fully God. You and I, we have God living in us, but we are still fully human, which means sometimes we're gonna have a hard time managing that tension. It's not easy. It won't be sanitary. It's sometimes going to be messy. What I know is we're going to love people unconditionally because there's no other kind of love. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Luke 15, verse 1. And if you think his sin is any worse than your sin, you still do not understand the holiness of our God. Listen very carefully, as Christians, our bodies don't belong to us. Our bodies belong to Christ. We are members of his body. Our body is his temple. Another cliche, you hear it every day. My body, my choice. Guess what, as a child of God, not true. My body is not my body. I can't do whatever I want to. Listen very carefully. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Paul is saying, how dare you guys go back to the temple of Aphrodite when your body has become the temple of God? I can't do whatever I want with my body. It's not me. It's not mine. For you were bought at a price, that is the blood of Jesus Christ, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you have same-sex attraction, I cannot promise you that like Holly, you're one day going to become a heterosexual. That's not always how it works. I didn't suddenly stop having an attraction to other women when I got married. That's not how it works. You make a choice to consecrate your body. I will deny my impulse if it is ungodly. Yes, it would come natural to follow around every beautiful woman and try to romantically seduce her if that was what I was going to do naturally to gratify my body, but I'm a child of God. My body is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. I know people in this church personally, like Holly, lived a gay or lesbian lifestyle, Jesus radically changed them, saved them, married today in a heterosexual marriage. I know other people in our church, gay or lesbian attraction, yet they have chosen to live celibate and single as a child of God because that is a true disciple. I know lesbian women that have been married and chosen to dissolve that marriage because they recognize it's not from God. They've been lied to. You see, obedience is sometimes costly. It's not easy. It's not easy. Being a Christian means denying myself. Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. It's a life of self-denial. I deny myself the right to gratify myself. Instead, I'm going to glorify God. That's New Testament Christianity that God calls all of us to, regardless of your sin, regardless of how it's fashioned, regardless of your form of temptation, we all deal with it the same way. My life is not my own. I have been bought at a price. Sexual activity is more than joining two bodies together. It joins two souls together. It's more than physical, it's spiritual. Check this out, you are more than a bag of bones and hormones. This one makes you different than an animal. You have a soul, you have a spirit, you have a moral conscience. 
And God intended sexual activity to be the deepest source of human intimacy. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? He quotes here from Genesis 2, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But who is he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. In the same way, we are one with him. Sexual activity joins us in oneness to another, not just physically, but spiritually. The sexual act is more than physical. It is spiritual. It's the bonding not simply of two bodies, but two souls. And the sexual act itself is deeply picturing the intimacy that we have with Jesus. You see this phrase in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, over 30 times, Christ is in us. And then in Colossians, it tells us that we are in him. And that union is pictured between a man and a woman In the marriage bed, sexual immorality destroys one's ability to bond with another on the deepest levels of human intimacy. Now here's the reason for the what. Here's the why behind it. Look what Paul says here. Here's the imperative, verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. What he's teaching is there's something different about sexual sin. The consequences are bigger than any other sin. Every other sin is outside the body, but sexual sin does something to our own body. It changes the way our body was made to function by God. And 2,000 years later, medical science has been able to explain and uncover what Paul wrote here 2,000 years ago, how sexual sin sins against our own body. It actually changes the brain. There are chemical reactors in the brain that go off during sexual activity. God put them there to deeply bond two people. The soul is not the same as the spirit. The soul is the mind, the will, the emotions. And here's what happens. Sexual sin changes the human soul, your mind, your brain, the oxytocin, the chemical that is released in your brain during sexual activity is a bonding agent. Galatians 2, uh, uh, Genesis 2.24, man leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife, being joined unto his wife. That cleaving, that joining happens during sexual activity. The oxytocin is released and there's a bonding agent between those two. But we live at a time now in this deeply secularized, sexualized society where even young men in their 20s who ought to be at the height of their sexual energy have to rely on products like Viagra to function properly because they have shredded the brain through thousands and thousands of pornographic images. The body doesn't work like it was meant to. And that's why Paul says flee. Because Satan is a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And you choosing self-gratification over God's glorification is leading slowly and subtly to your destruction. And this is why eventually you don't feel about things like you used to. You don't feel about the sin like you used to. The first time you clicked on porn, you had that conviction, that guilty, icky feeling. But you don't anymore. You know why? because it changes the brain, the soul. The soul is the mind, the will, the emotions. The soul is the moral conscience. 
And that's why 1 Peter 2 and verse 11, it says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, not the spirit, but rather the soul. Proverbs 6 verse 32, he that commits adultery with a woman destroys his own soul, not your spirit, the part that lives forever, your soul, your ability to feel, it's your moral conscience. It's your sensitivity towards sin. I've had men look at me caught in the throes of immorality, say, Pastor Phil, I just don't feel anything. I'm numb. And the reason you're numb is you've destroyed your soul, your ability to feel. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2. Some have seared their conscience as with a hot iron. I have a place on my calf that was burned so badly when I was a teenager, I still can't feel a part of my body, the nerve receptors were forever injured. They are dead. In the same way, you can sear your body with a hot iron and literally you feel nothing. You can sear your soul, your conscience with sin, and now you don't feel a thing. America is becoming past feeling. And some of us have too. Because when you sin sexually over and over again, you're sinning against your own body the way God made you. And that's why he says flee. Listen, you don't fight this kind of temptation. You flee from this kind of temptation. You don't fight it. You flee from it. You run from it. The early 1990s, I'm a rookie husband. I'm a rookie cop sitting around the dinner table one night at Chubby's Restaurant, 36 and Broadway, with some other young officers. Law enforcement is kind of a, let's just say, a culture of infidelity and adultery, and these guys are sitting around talking about all the other women that in their life besides the one they're married to. One of them looks at me in the middle of this conversation says, Phil, I'll bet you would never cheat on your wife, would you? I remember what I said at the time. I was either spiritually ignorant or spiritually naive. I looked at him and said, no way, I never could. Not that I never would. I said, I never could. I could not do that. 30 years later, let me tell you what the truth is. I could do that. And the only reason I have never done that is because I know I could. See, spiritual maturity is when you come to a place in life where you don't trust yourself at all, but you have learned to trust God completely. Trust God completely, don't trust yourself at all. I know that I'm capable of a lot of sin that I've never actually committed. And the lesson came a few months later. I'm still a rookie cop. I'm a rookie husband. Two o'clock in the morning, 38th in Maine, I go into a fast stop for a cup of coffee. About that same time, another car pulls up. Two young ladies get out. They are strippers from what was then at 35th and Maine. It was called Bazooka Showgirls. They get to the door same time as I did. And they barely had anything on. And they were not ugly. No, they, they, they were beautiful. We get to the door at the same time. One of them looks up at me and says, do you ever cheat on your wife? I didn't say a thing. I got back in my car and I sped away. Flee! 
run, run for your life. Listen, church, I learned something about myself. It was ugly. I learned something about myself that night. I really wanted to stay. I ran away. But I realized a part of me wanted to stay. I learned that night I could cheat on my wife. I chose not to cheat on my wife. Part of me wanted to cheat on my wife. You know why? Because I am fallen. And apart from Jesus, my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Romans 7, 18, all that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Chris and I just had 30 years together in marriage. Guess what? 30 years of fidelity. 30 years of faithfulness. You know why we both have made it 30 years? Because we both have run away over and over again. You don't suddenly get married and never have an attraction for another woman. It's not how it works. You choose consecration over self-gratification. I will not entertain this temptation. I will not go back to the temple of Aphrodite and just flirt with her image. I will not go there again in my mental images and meditate over and over again. Run, flee, because it will take you into captivity. This is how you deal with all sexual sins, same-sex attraction, immoral, illicit attraction. It doesn't matter, you deal with the same way as a Christian. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, we have been delivered by Jesus from sin's penalty. We've been delivered by the Spirit of God from sin's power. Now listen, you're not delivered from temptation. No, temptation is part of life until you see Jesus and go to heaven. But you're delivered from the sin, the power of the sin. You've been washed in the blood of the Son of God to be white and holy and clean once again. You see, when you come to Jesus and you trust in the blood, not just once, but over and over again, you can be numbered among the redeemed, white and holy, pristine and clean. Sexual immorality is not your identity and it does not have to be your destiny. Jesus, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice and not one among us would miss the opportunity to run from sin and to our gracious, loving Savior. We're gonna stand and sing Blue Springs Independence right there in your home if you're worshiping online. Lee Summit, let's just stand and sing. Let these words begin to wash you clean. Let them refine you because that's what God wants to do in you and for you. Let's stand together and make our life a living sacrifice.
Jesus the glory with me today. He's worthy, isn't he? But you have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So thankful. Church, I love you deeply. Now, there are people here that love you too, right here at this altar. Some of you ought to come this way as those are going that way. They're here to pray with you, answer questions for you, help you take your next step, whatever that might be. God bless you. Have a great day, church. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.